Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Look out. It's only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a self-checkout attendant, and I love films. As Werner Heisenberg once said, there are things that are so serious you can only joke about them such as the entire premise of the film The Happening. Every week I invite a special guest over, I tell them they've died, then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Jamila Jamil, Ricky Gervais and Mark Kermode, but this week my special guest is Girls and the Perfection director Richard Shepard. I'm in LA at the moment. You can keep up to date with all of my live shows and stand-up gigs by following me on Twitter at Brett Goldstein and on Instagram at Mr. Brett Goldstein. If you do enjoy the podcast and you want to support it and get more content, come and join me over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein, where you'll get extra guest questions for most episodes. You'll get videos, you'll get guest list tickets, recommendations, all sorts of stuff. There's a right old community forming over there. Come and join us. This week, there are 10 minutes of extra chat about all kinds of things, and there's a video and you'll love it. And remember, best of all, if you do become a Patreon member, not only do you get all this extra good stuff, you don't have to hear me talking about becoming a Patreon member. You get the whole episode unencumbered by ads and me banging on about you becoming a fucking Patreon member. So give it a look over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. So here we go. Richard Shepard is a proper New York filmmaker and my first proper New York filmmaker guest I've had on the show. I worked with him a couple of years ago on a pilot for HBO, and I think he is absolutely brilliant. And it became very clear when we met that he is a full-on, proper, proper, hardcore film buff. A man who has dedicated his life to watching films, celebrating films, and making films. And for that, I salute him. He's responsible for some of my favourite episodes of Girls, the ones where you're like, oh my god, that's like a mini masterpiece, like a mini movie in one. He directed all those ones. And he's also directed the film The Perfection, which is currently available on Netflix and is sending the internet insane. One other thing I want to say about Richard is that he made a, I think it's 30-minute film called The Tokyo Project, which you can find on HBO Go and maybe other places. But I really recommend you look at it because it's a fucking masterpiece. And it's got Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men in. It's an absolutely beautiful film and I really recommend you seek it out. Richard came to visit me when I got to LA. I was really jet-lagged, and I just sat back and he told me the most amazing stories, and it was excellent. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 46 of Films to be Buried With. 
Hello. Hello. And welcome to <laughs> Phil's to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein. I am in LA and I am joined today by one of the best directors that I've ever worked with. He's done TV. He's done film. He's done TV and film. Please. Both of them. Will you welcome to the show the incredible Richard Shepard. Unbelievable. Unbelievable welcome. Thank here you. Here he is. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. I've been waiting for you to come to Los Angeles. Well, I've been waiting to talk to you because you are a proper, I mean, you're a proper film buff, right? I mean, yes. You, you're yes. one of the few people I've met who I go, yeah, he likes film, if not as much, maybe more than me. You fucking really yeah, like film. Yeah, I, I do. And yeah. I've been jealous listening to these things. I'm wondering actually why you never asked me. I was starting to get slightly angry. I think I did the day I started it. said, please, one day. And, <laughs> and I, I said, I got to wait and see if it's good. <laughs> yeah. You said, I'll give it 10 episodes. <laughs> exactly. And then I'll see if I can find the time. And then it got to episode 10. You went, let me, one more, one more. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. You and I met doing an HBO pilot. I don't even know if we're allowed to talk about it. Didn't. I think we can. I think we can because it didn't happen. Well, uh, it happened. It just didn't, didn't happen. But I thought it was excellent. And I thank think you. it was. And um, you were excellent. Thank you very much. And you were excellent. And we were both, if I could just say it, yeah. excellent. Yeah, we were. But I felt, and again, we might, if we have to, can't say this alone, but and I, I'm interested to know you as someone who was more backstage than me. I thought we were doomed day two of the shoot because the man who had picked the show up got fired. That's exactly right. Right, okay. That's so. exactly right. So we were, you know, it was it was a uh, uh, Whitney Cummings was wrote it and, and was starring in it and producing it and uh, Jenny Bix from Sex and the City and yeah. it was like a really good group of people and uh, I got a call saying, "Are you interested in? Would you ever direct a Whitney Cummings pilot?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely." Yeah. And then we had this fun time putting it together, and then I had heard rumblings that. Michael Lombardo, who was running HBO at the time, was going to leave. And I was like, hmm, yeah. this is this is really odd timing, yeah. you know. Um, and then he really, it really was day two. I mean, we it both, was. we all noticed that there was not one HBO executive on the set. And usually on any TV pilot, yeah. there's executives like sitting around, hobnobbing, eating craft service, watching the monitors, like yeah. glad handling, taking to dinner. Like there was, it was empty. So it was like, we were operating <laughs> without us. any adult supervision. It was like an independent film. It was totally it? an independent yeah. film. There was not one thing. No one was around. And I'm like, this, this isn't good. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. And, and to be fair, that new administration, yeah. they want to do their own stuff. I mean, like it's, they only get I've, so many shots at it, you know. I've never done anything where, when the, the person that commissioned the thing moves, the thing goes. Never. I think it happens more often than yeah. you would think. It's just sort of like you, you, it's it's part of the process of making TV or movies. It's like you, someone believes in you enough to actually risk their career by saying yes. Because no one wants to say yes. They all want to say no. Yeah. No, they can just walk away. And if they pass on a big show, they can tell it in a humorous way at dinner. Like, ah, I just passed on. But like, if yeah. they say yes to something and it bombs, it's their ass. Like, there's yeah. just no... And you get one or two of those, and then suddenly you're gone. You know, it's like it's a short attention span world. So people are terrified to say yes. I, I find that in everything. Mm. So to say yes to something that you didn't even originate, yeah. you know, is, is even trickier. God, that's depressing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's funny you say that about the execs, because I did a pilot a year later for NBC, and I remember thinking, 
there's 25 people in suits around the monitor. Who are these people? And they were there every day. And, I, and that's why, because they were still working. They, they actually had a job. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Interesting. When I do a TV pilot, and normally there are a lot of, there's a studio and there's a mm. network. And I have two video villages, video village where everyone watches the monitors. I have like the monitor where the DP and the creator and I will stand. Yeah. And then the video village where the executives are. And I try to put it as far away as possible without it feeling like it's on purpose far away. Yeah. So more time is spent on that than perhaps even blocking and <laughs> shot listing. It's like, good, where can I move it so that I don't have to hear them or see them, but they yeah. don't think I'm being... But, I, you know, I put them on the second floor when we're on the third floor. I put them outside in the rain when we're inside, you know. Now, before we talk a bit more about films, you've done some of the biggest pilots also. I mean, you're a yes. very successful pilot man. You've made Criminal Minds pilot? I did. What was the other? There's like the four Ugly big Betty ones. pilot. Ugly Betty pilot. Mm-hmm. It's fucking huge. Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of I've done a lot of pilots. It, it's Do you cheat as in I know you're brilliant, but I also know that pilot season is mad. Do you think that's luck or do you think did you get to choose all of them? How often were them? You do get to choose. I mean, Criminal Minds was the first pilot I'd ever done and right. I wanted to get into the pilot business because it's a great business to be in. It's like the best job as a director short of directing features that exists because as a pilot director you get it's like a little mini movie you get to help cast the show and set the look and the tone you have months to work on it instead of a week and the best part is that you have a piece of the pie you get as a director of a pilot you get a check every single time a new episode of that show is filmed and you have to do nothing Oh, wow. So this is why a lot of people want to be in the pilot business because it's this weird passive money that just comes yeah. in. You're like, well, they got picked up for another season. It's ugly Betty was years. Criminal yeah. Minds was years. Well, Criminal Minds was years, and my ex-wife is enjoying that money immensely. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I've been doing this for a long time, but but uh, Criminal Minds was a situation in which I had just done my movie The Matador, and it hadn't come out yet. And the the executive producer of that movie named Mark Gordon had this pilot criminal minds and the director fell out four weeks before they were going to shoot. Oh, wow. And he was like, do you have any interest in doing it? And I was like, yes. And CBS at the time was like, no way. We have no idea who this guy is. Absolutely not. And we're like, no, wait a second. I just did this movie. I'd done these other little indie movies. Yeah. They're like, no, no, no. But Mark Gordon, to his credit, was like, you're taking him. He's cheap. You're going to take him. <laughs> and, and, and once that became successful suddenly i was like in the club but i had been forced in by mark like he he, like literally forced me in and then after that the next year i signed a deal with abc which had produced criminal minds and they sent me eight pilots and i remember my agent very clearly saying there's eight pilots coming to you pick any of them just don't do ugly betty and i was like you know, this is the only one I really love. Really? That's interesting. Like, no, well, no, 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 but J.J. Abrams has a pilot and so-and-so has a pilot. You're going to want to do, you're going to want to work with them. I'm like, yeah. I do want to work with them, but, but Ugly Betty is like calling my name. And so you were right. I was right. But then there's times too where I've made completely the wrong right. decision. Like, let's be honest. I mean, you can't win them all. Uh, there's times when, like last season I passed, I, I, or two, two years ago, there was a pilot that I was offered that was a half hour comedy and it would have been in LA. It would have been very easy and I liked it. And then I got offered a much more difficult one hour drama, but I thought it would be more challenging. And I took that and the half hour still on and making someone a lot of money. And the, the one hour did not get picked up. So you can't win them all. 
Um, you but it also, I mean, honestly, Brett, the yeah. reason that I love him more than anything is because pilot directing is, is sort of, A, you, you can make this money, um, and B, it's a very confined period of time. I like that. I like starting something in, you know, February and knowing by May whether you succeeded. It's a very sort of satisfying, in a, in a business in which movies can take months to get out and you're waiting for the reviews and what's the box office. Yeah. With a pilot, it's it's like it's mo- we're, it's- we're in a race. Yeah. I'm a race against other pilots and it's we're, we know in three months who wins. And I like, from my competitive side, I really like it. But I also like it because it gives me the freedom then to do other stuff in a major way. I can make independent movies and not mm. have to worry necessarily about how much you know, am I going to get paid enough to, to survive? Well, I'll get paid enough because there's a, a minimum to be paid, but I don't have to, I can still make the movie for a low budget yeah. because I'm making enough money elsewhere or I can make a documentary or a short film, whatever I want to do and, and know that like my rent's going to be paid. And if I didn't have the pilot stuff, I don't think I would be able to quite, you know, manage my career in the way that I have. It's fascinating. And you've also done, and then we will move on to film, but you've okay. done the best episodes of girls all of the greatest episodes of girls and they're quite specific i was looking over them this morning and i was like you seem to do all the bottle episodes for one and the ones that sort of work as standalone films but i realized that there is a theme to all the episodes you do which is do you know what it is no i'm I'm fascinated uh i think that all the episodes that you've done are about the fantasy of love or desire fading away. A moment where they fade away. Both of them in, in another man's trash, one man's trash. Yeah. It's one of my favourite moments in all things. And I think about it an awful lot. You have this relationship, this sort of dirty weekend, this exciting, could be anything, this could be anything. They have loads of sex and it's like, wow, we've just got this thing and it's magical. And then you have this moment where she does a speech about her worries and her things and you see in his face and it's so good it drained from him like oh this isn't yeah real this is not real i'm living in a fantasy world and this is not right and in the american bitch it's quite an extreme version that you have this sort of dance of like oh maybe we can be this maybe we can do this and then at the end you have this reveal of no this is the reality. Yeah, he's taking out, out his penis. <laughs> and then in the one with uh, Marnie and the woman, it's like, oh, we're having a world, is it? No, he's an addict and it's fucked. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's this is all the credit to, to Lena, who's a brilliant yeah. writer. And that was a six-year collaboration that I will always treasure and feel yeah. extremely lucky that as a cranky old white man, I got to d- mm. direct on this very hip show. Um, you were the first director... Uh, after her, right? Is she right? never had anyone direct her material yeah. before I, I came on. I did two episodes a season. But in the second season, I did the One Man's Trash episode, which was groundbreaking at the at the moment, the, mm. the sort of bottle episode-ness of it. Also for the world of girls, it was... It was and for me, it was, the, it was super important. It was the first episode that Lena's character ever had good sex. Yeah. She'd been having nothing but bad sex. That's true. And so... All of that was very interesting, but because the nature of that episode was two people in an apartment, and I traded a day of shooting for a day of rehearsal, and it was an incredible, because I knew I could shoot it fast, because it was only two people, there's yeah. only so much you could do, and we had this incredible day of rehearsal, and then we decided we were going to shoot it with basically a five-person crew. So oh, wow. 75 people stood outside, and five of us were inside. We had one light per scene. Wow. 
and a sound guy and and the AD was usually hiding under the bed and <laughs> and that was it it was so tiny mm. so it was like a little bit of a it was like a real indie film but by doing it in that small way we were really able to get intimate and yeah. you know there's a moment when Lena is basically having an orgasm at, 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 for the for the first time mm. and she goes flush that's one of those things when you're like watching on the monitor and I was right there next to her, next yeah. to the camera, but I'm like, did she just go flush? Like you couldn't, yeah. I, I was like, this is like unbelievable. I, I mean, it's unbelievable moment. So the experience of doing that and the freedom we had doing that. And by the way, everyone in LA was terrified, Really terrified for a number of reasons. When you do a single character bottle episode, you have nothing to cut to if it's not working. Yeah. So yeah. on girls, Sometimes the scene wouldn't work and you just cut to one of the other characters locked out of their apartment or fucking someone yeah. and like it's fine. And here there was just nothing to cut to. So that was already like a fear on all of the bottle episodes I did of like, mm. if this doesn't work, it's a bad half hour. <laughs> yeah. But then there was just this element of the, the emotional intimacy that was mm. scaring the people in L.A., the editor. I remember Judd Apatow was like thinking that it was the worst episode ever. Mm. Like it was just a... It was like very scary because we were getting this feedback from LA, but we were like, no, but we're doing something really beautiful, yeah. you know, and everything was like uh, on the fly. We didn't, I didn't shot list. It was just very organic and, and like handheld, but they had never done before. And so we get to LA and there's a, like a palpable tension in the edit room. And the wow. first cut was lousy, you know, because, right. and then. Paul Zucker, the editor, and I just sort of stripped everything away, stripped all the sort of normal music they used, stripped all of the stuff away and started cutting. And by the end, we I think we found something really beautiful and, yeah. and Judd came around and, and everyone came around. And then from that point on, Lena tried to, to give me one of these standalone episodes as, as often as she could. Right. And then in the last season, I got to do the Matthew Reese episode, which was really fun. And Lena said to me when she gave me the script, she's like, this is my thank you gift for six years. Oh, like, wow. that we get to do this episode together. It was super fun. That's so nice. Yes. And you were responsible for the final shot of all the girls heading towards the yes. building. Yeah. Well, the, the episode is this episode, if you haven't seen it, in which See this, it. this uh, author sort of uses his, his sort of power and influence to manipulate uh, Lena's character and eventually sort of proves his point that he can get a girl where he wants her to be. Mm. And it's a real power struggle. And I wanted the episode originally ended with, with her sort of leaving after this experience. And I didn't think it was enough. And I made a pitch. I, I said, be interesting if she left, because she gets away without sort of with some of her dignity intact, maybe, yeah. but a little uh, gets away. But I was like, not everyone gets away. And I had this image of all these women coming into his apartment as she left. And I pitched it to, Lena and Jenny and Judd, and I think the reaction was like, I don't know. But I sort of begged, and at this point I sort of, you know, I was like, listen, let me do it. And they were like, you can do it. And we shot it, and then I thought it looked beautiful. I was Mm -hmm. very proud of it. And I put it in my director's cut. And usually, by the way, for my director's cuts of girls, they were usually the the cut that ended up on the air. Like if Lena made any changes, they were tiny and they always improved it, but it wasn't like it was just a rough draft. It was, it was really, and that was another part of that process I loved. But anyway, I put it into my cut and uh, about four days later, I get word that, that it's not it. My last shot's not in. And I was like, I know that they're wrong, Yeah. but you know, it's hard to tell someone that, you know, because it's all an opinion. 
But I finally, like, got, I decided to just, you know, use emotional blackmail and, like, call Lena, you're like, like you're breaking my heart. You're breaking my heart. And I, and, and she eventually <laughs> caved into the emotional blackmail. And then I, and I subsequently said that she, she's glad that she did. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I'm not against using any sort of, whatever sort yeah. of emotional, financial, <laughs> kidnapping, whatever yeah. one needs to do. Well, I think it's worth it. It's very memorable. And the last thing, because we, we, uh, is you have just made a film yes. called The Perfection, yes, which I have not seen. I'm very excited to see, yes, which you made very quickly and then immediately had a premiere and it went amazing from everything I read. It got phenomenal reviews and it has Marnie in it, yes, Alison Williams, and it's a and it's a horror. It's or it's a, a, a it's a bit. bonkers movie called The Perfection that yeah. is going to premiere on Netflix on May 24th. And uh, they bought it after we 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 had a we went to Fantastic Fest, which is a film festival in Austin for yeah. genre movies, and that's where we we and it was we, like midnight, right? Your it was midnight a midnight screen. screening on opening right. night, and we didn't. Fi- they basically called us four days before it happened, and they're like, "We have a slot that's open. Wow. Someone slipped us a copy of the movie. Would you come and premiere your movie there?" Wow. And we it was a tough decision because we knew then we wouldn't be able to go to Sundance or anything like yeah. that. Because we would have premiered, but we were like, you know, this is we're about to try and sell this movie. Probably be good if we did that, and it ended up being an amazing experience. But I wanted to make a, uh, I love Korean movie. I love The Handmaiden. I love yeah. Old Boy, and uh, I don't think American movies have figured out yet how to have a bonkers, twisty plot that is so crazy but yet somehow makes sense. So my goal was. To make a movie in which when each act is over, you think there's no way that the next act has anything to do with the act before, but somehow it does. And it was a real challenge. Did you write it? I co-wrote it okay. with um, Eric Carmelo and Nicole Snyder, who I had done a pilot called Ringer with, with Sarah Michelle Gellar as identical twins. Okay. She got to act with her favorite actor. Um <laughs> Uh, we we uh, we wrote this thing and we wrote it really fast. We wrote it in like four months. It just came out of us, and we got Allison attached immediately because I wrote it for her. And we got the money, and we made it in Shanghai and in Vancouver. And I'm really excited for people to see it. It's different than anything I've done. It's yeah. a bonkers. It's a batshit crazy movie. So it's right. not going to be for everyone. But I actually think it's. I mean, I'm very proud of it. It's so weird that I can't believe anyone finance it or bought it oh, and so brilliant. now when people that's see right it I, i'll be street. interested in how people see and it's unlike my other work yeah. um but it's uh yeah it's it's interesting and uh, well i want to see it on the big screen but it's gonna be on netflix but it might be on some cinemas yeah it's gonna play it, it we're gonna have a few you know right now there's that is the big question right. you know netflix releases things in theaters really as a way to guarantee their oscar Avail- right. availability or possibility you have to open in cinemas to to be okay. able to get an oscar and the, while i think the perfection is is worth every oscar yeah. it's probably not going to get any oscar because oscars don't particularly like uh bonkers, bonkers <laughs> yeah. so uh y- you know it's it, that is this is the challenge of netflix you know mm. the the trade-off is that we don't have to worry about um, the weekend box office. Yeah. We don't have to worry about like how many theaters are we playing in? Will it expand? Yeah. We don't have to worry about... You know, most movies, the actors go on talk shows or chat shows before the movie comes out, right? So the people yeah. hear about it, they get excited. Netflix doesn't want any actor on a show until the movie is open or di- a day before. Really? Because they believe what 
people want to see someone on a chat show and then watch them. Right, yeah. And so, in fact, they're talking to Allison about two weeks after the movie premieres for her to start going on chat show. Wow. It's a very interesting thing because we don't have to worry about the first weekend's yeah. box office. So that's the good part about it. And mm. the bad part about it is that, you know, it's a movie and it's made mm. to be seen in a movie theater. And I, I'm someone who, you know, I, I feel sad that there won't be a trailer playing at a movie yeah. theater. You know, it's like the, the, the tra- but this is like the brave new, I wanted a specific film distributor to distribute this movie yeah. uh, who distributes very cool movies and is like my dream distributor. And Netflix's offer was more than three times their offer. Right. In fact, more than three times anyone's offer. Wow. So there's just, there was just no way around. There's just no way that the financiers yeah, of the movie are going to be like, you know what? That. Let's yeah. just, uh, let's just roll the dice. We can either become whole yeah. and like, you know, feel good about ourselves or we can totally risk it. And then one bad review or one yeah. weird thing or a snowstorm. And then the, you're, you're sunk. Fuck. Well, look, if I can't see it on the big screen, I promise I'm going to watch it on the biggest Telly yes, I can find I, I, and I appreciate the lights it. off and the curtains drawn and the sound out. You, you definitely, you definitely want okay. the lights off. It is yeah. scary. Okay, great. Um, oh, I forgot to tell you something. Yeah, tell me. Oh fuck! I it's should fine. have told you this. We're not really recording this. I should have told you this. <laughs> this when you got a... it. Oh, it's terrible. I haven't told you. What? Fuck. Oh, oh well, I just have to say it because it's weird if I don't. You died. You've died. <sighs> It is bad news, isn't yeah, it? In a way. It really is. How did you die? Well, it was weird. I was, uh, it's hard to talk about. Yeah. You know, because I'm dead. Yeah. But uh, I was. But this uh, is a safe space. It is. I was, I was, uh, I went up to Napa. Um, yeah. Yeah. The wine I like, place. I, uh, Napa, California. It's Northern California, but it's where a lot of great wine is, is, is made. And mm. I like wine. I'm not a wine snob. I just like wine, okay. and but I, I, you I dabble. I, I well, I'll drink it. But <laughs> Napa's fun because you can go to these different vineyards and and taste wine, and you yeah. you act like you're sophisticated and you eat some good food and whatever. I was there, yeah, and uh, I decided to go to Francis Coppola's vineyard because nice. he owns a vineyard there and makes his own wine, which is extremely uh, delicious. And his vineyard is gorgeous, right. It was unbelievable. But I went there and there was, at first I was excited because I heard that Coppola was actually there. Because wow. like, he lives, he has a house that you can actually see from the vineyard. He yeah. lives there, I think, most of the time. Right. And then I heard that he was actually in the grape fields, whatever they're called, yeah. <laughs> picking grapes. Yeah. Because he's he's that tactile. He literally makes the way. But there was a lightning storm. Uh, what? And I was like... Oh my goodness. And I'm on a tour of the vineyard and they're like, this is where, the, and I'm like, no, you don't understand. The, the, the greatest filmmaker, perhaps of all time, one of the five greatest filmmakers of yeah. all time is in a lightning storm. Yeah. So I ran out. It was, it was horrible because I was drinking a lovely Cabernet at the time. I had to put it down. I ran out yeah. and I see Coppola there. He's not a small man. He's easy to spot. And as I'm getting there, I'm like, oh, my God, there's lightning right behind yeah. him. I'm like, Francis Coppola. And then I just get hit by lightning. I die. So you took the lightning bolt that was meant for Francis Coppola. You, you took it yourself. I put it in your arm. He was the reason I wanted to. His movie was the reason I wanted to make movies. So I feel like it's a, it's a, it's, it, it makes sense in a way yeah. that I would take the lightning bolt for Listen, him. you'd be amazed how many people have given that answer. Really? That's <laughs> shit. It's I should listen to your podcast more often. Guess. Every guest, but listen, it's 
do you worry about death? Is it is it a thing that bothers you? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, I used to not, but recently I have. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I want to be able to keep making my stuff. You yeah. know, I don't. I feel like that's like an impediment to like the ambition that I have. You know, uh, I want to. I want to continue to, be, uh, to to make movies and to tell stories. And the dying thing seems like a tremendous bummer, you know, on that level. You think so, but honestly, this podcast has really proved that wrong. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, you do get to have the podcast. Yeah. Do you um, think there's an afterlife? There's definitely not an afterlife in my mind. I think it's. Right. I think you're gone. It's a flat night. And, and I do think also artistically it's a toughie. You know, we're like a generation. There, there's a whole generation of people who probably don't know who Francis Coppola is. Mm. You know what I mean? Let alone, you know, filmmakers from the 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s. So your art, in a way, is only of the now. So it used to, you you know, there's occasional movies and art that lasts, you know, you go to a museum, obviously, it's full of older art. But film and film, because of the way, the, the immediacy of it, it doesn't quite have the same thing. And you go to Netflix and, you know, Netflix wants to have a new product for four yeah. members of the family to watch every night. That's their goal. So four different genres type things every night. So the idea that you're going to go and go back to some episode of some TV show, even from five years ago, mm. like, are you really going to do that? Or are you going to watch the 900 things being promoted? So it used to be like, you'd think, well, if I make a great movie, then it will outlive me. Yeah, And, and that's still possible, but I think it's actually... Not as positive. So, I don't know. That, 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 that's depressing, isn't it? Yeah, really depressing. Yeah. So, you don't even think you can have a legacy anymore? Not really. I think your legacy is your life that you lived in the way your friends and family remember the way you lived your life. That's the legacy. Okay. That you lived in it. You lived, you, you lived a risky, adventurous, artistic life. That's yeah. a great legacy and maybe more than even the, the product the actual, that, you, uh, that you made. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that seems all right. Yeah, I do. I think it is all yeah. right. I mean, at least that's what I tell myself. I mean, you know, I, I'm like maybe that's better than it being your art and all your friends and family going, "He was a dick." Right. But the arts, right? It would be great to have like he was the greatest guy and lived an artistic life, and he made this piece of art that has lasted yeah, the, te- yeah. the t- test of time. But you know, the 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 filmmakers certainly that I loved in the '70s and the movies that I grew up loving. I don't know how much they're really in the conversation of this new generation. I really don't. Really? Well, I have good news. Okay. There is an afterlife. You oh. you were flat wrong. Wow. Uh, this is amazing. Yeah. And it's the... I mean, you are fucking love it there. <laughs> okay. Because it is uh, heaven, obsessed with film. And I got film from all the time. It's like going to... A place you can go, oh, I always wanted to see that Preston Sturges <laughs> film. Bang, there yeah. it is. Yeah. Movie night. And... All anyone there wants to talk about is your life, but through film. Okay. And the first film they want to know about is, the, what is the first film you remember seeing? I believe that the first movie I saw was the original 1933 King Kong. Mm-hmm. And it was playing at a theater in New York that, for whatever reason, sort of like predated the Alamo Draft House, where you could get a beer and a burger, because I remember you could eat there. Wow. And I went with my dad. And uh, where was it? Sorry, it was in, in Midtown Manhattan, and I don't remember where. And that's where you grew up. I grew Midtown up in Manhattan, Manhattan yeah, wow. in New York City. And my dad was a big film buff, a big film buff. He wasn't in the business at all. He he was uh, 
he didn't really have a, a job. He was a, I think he did a lot of illegal things and had a lot of different names, but uh, it was a lovely man and he loved movies. So I definitely got my love of movies from him. Are you an only child, man? I'm an only child. Oh, wow. Uh, um, only child film director. Can you only imagine what an asshole I am? Um, but uh, uh, he took me to that. And then I was, I remember being blown away. And then at the time, they would show King Kong on TV a lot too, yeah. like all the time. And I remember when I was like eight or nine, I really wanted to be a writer. And I started writing books, like yeah. mysteries and stuff like that. Because I would read mysteries and I'd, I'd write, write these mysteries. And and they were great. No, I would write that. <laughs> but I wrote, I remember writing an article called King Kong for the 100th time. Because I was like 13 or 14 and I figured I'd seen it 100 times by that point. And I wrote this article and there was some film magazine that I don't remember the name of. Not a major one, but someone that I had a copy of the, the magazine. And I sent it to them yeah. as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. And they wrote back saying, we very much like this article. We would like it to be another like 300 words longer. And I wrote them back and said, you have my only copy. And they never returned. That was it. It was gone. I still think about that. Like I had, like I, I, it it is heartbreaking. But um, so, so King Kong is the first movie I remember seeing. And I think that the second movie I remember seeing was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Ah, what a double bear. And this was strange because I went to school in New York City where, you know, in New York, when you're eight years old or whatever, Mm -hmm. you don't know whose parents are who, but somebody's parent worked at a studio because we went into some offices and saw the movie. So it must have been 71 or 77. Well, like a preview. Like We went to, on a Saturday morning to a screening room and got to see this movie that wow. had not come out. So I was six, probably. Ah, so I have this memory of being being like very nervous in a way of going to this screening room. I didn't, yeah. I'd never been in one. I didn't know what it was. And, and seeing that movie, and so those are the two the two movies that I remember, the first movies I really remember. Um, but I did get a my dad took me to revival theaters all the time, and at the time New York had a lot of revival theaters, and we would go on a somewhat regular basis. So I got like a early Hitchcock education. I got an education in a lot of movies because my dad took me to them. I think my dad just loved going to the movies, yeah. and, and sometimes he had to deal with me, so he just took me. It wasn't like, let me introduce you to the 39 Steps by Hitchcock. It's more yeah. like, I want to see the 39 Steps, and you're, you're coming with me. But uh, I did get to see a lot. Were you, may I ask this? Were your mom and dad together? Was your mom Yes, there? my mom's still around, and my okay. dad passed away about 12 years ago, but he... Uh, did your mom not like film? Or she was did, she not but part she was this? not nearly okay. the film. My dad was a, a genuine film buff, and yeah. you know... Before VHS and videotapes and yeah. beta, like you, you only could see it in revival theaters, and so my dad had a lot of film books, and we would go, which I still have his film books, but we would go through them, and he would talk about what each movie was, and there was yeah. very little chance I would ever see them, but he had seen all of them because I think that he, when he was a kid, escaped to the movies from a, a unhappy childhood and enjoyed the movies in a way, and really yes. passed it down to me. And in fact, he died while I was making my movie, The Matador, oh, and didn't ever get to see the finished version of it. But I did dedicate the movie to him, and it was actually nice. um, I said it's for, for my dad who loved movies because he really did love movies. So, um, and you know, he he 
half of him was very proud that I wanted to be a filmmaker and half of him was just terrified because I had really not made it by the time the matter I had had an up and down career I had stuff made and then I was unemployed and then I you know back and forth and back forth and I think he was like and now he of course was a you know would resorted to criminal activity to support himself. So maybe he was just thinking that that was going to happen to me, but being a film director is sort of a criminal pursuit. So. <laughs> yeah. That's so fascinating. I'd like you to make a film about your dad. I, I want to. Okay. I'm waiting good. for my mom to pass away. Okay. <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's not rush I mean, that. I'm not, yeah, yeah. I don't want to. That came out wrong. Films take a very long yeah, time to get right. <laughs> so, there's no rush. You can <laughs> let, let her enjoy we'll herself. Yeah. Yeah. Years. I have so many questions about this, but one is, I love King Kong, the original King yeah. Kong, and I am obsessed, I'm sure you've heard me talk about this, I get so mad about CGI and yes. CGI monsters and stuff, and King Kong is a perfect example of, it's very old, and it's using, they're using miniatures and they're yes. using puppets and stuff, but I 100% stand by, it's better than CGI, because it's there, even those miniatures, it's fucking there, it's physically there, the actors can touch it, the actors are reacting to a real thing that is there. And the King Kong is a really tight, isn't it? It's a really tight film. And the end, it's beautiful. It's a perfect last line. Yeah. It's, it's done very yes. efficiently. It's quite moving. Love it. Yeah, I showed Don't my I showed my uh, stepson it a few years ago, a while ago, and he really liked it. I mean, it, it was interesting because obviously there's some racial politics that are crazy now, right? You know, so you you have to watch it with an understanding <laughs> that of, of, in, when it was made. Mm. Um, and obviously the special effects are primitive in some level, but they're also inc- incredibly engaging and it's such a well-told mm. story and you feel an emotional bond to it that you don't feel certainly in Peter Jackson's disastrous, yeah. disastrous movie. Right, I, was I mean, ask. that's one of the worst remakes of anything ever. And Peter Jackson's a good filmmaker mm. and obviously he's made some very good movies, but... This was a turd of unbelievable portraits, and I loved. I even liked the '76 King Kong with Jeff Bridges. There's things right, like that yeah. I kind of like, but the CGI mm. Kong, there was just something completely inadequate. You just didn't have any feeling towards it. Now, there was a Kong movie about two years ago. Oh yeah, Skull there, Island. That I that I kind of liked. Okay, I didn't see uh, it, but uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's visual effects. I mean. There's, there was a period where everything was CGI, and now there's mm. been going back a lot, going back to more tactile, real effects. I remember doing, a, I did a pilot of a show that ran for a few years called Salem, which was set in the okay. during the witch trials. And for the pilot, this is about seven years ago. For the pilot, I said I want to shoot with only available light, only right. available light, and I want every effect to be practical. Right. And I got about four days of available light before they basically threatened to fire me because they were like, You're, it's so dark. And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's supposed to be scary. They're like, I know, but we want to have some latitude <laughs> later. No, you could see them. Yeah, yeah. You could fucking see them. You just, it was just dark, you know, yeah. that gets people worried. So we ended up having to put a few lights, but all the effects were practical. So there were real bugs on people. There was real thing. There was real mud. There was real thing. And it, it, that part, and uh, we used a lot of old film tricks and stuff like that. And the, the tactileness of that mm. really made it fun. You know, and su- subsequently the show ended up doing more CG effects because they're faster and easier. Yeah. And they, you just lose a little of the, you lose a little of the fun. There's something, listen, there's a shot in that movie where real bugs are crawling all over Janet Montgomery, who's an actor. She's like half naked and they're crawling all over her. 
I was so scared filming it. I like literally have never been more scared in my life. And That's I can't even great. imagine how she, she said I will give you 60 seconds. But it's incredible. Yeah. And in fact, you can watch the shot and the camera jiggles because the fucking operator was terrified. It was terrified. <laughs> That's how it should be. Exactly. Real people being really scared. Exactly. <laughs> what is, speaking of which, what is the film that scared you the most? Okay, so when I was in high school... I went to a lot of movies. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Blood Beach and Pauline on the Beach on the same day. Yes. Um, so my buddy and I had heard about this movie called When a Stranger Calls because they had a lot of advertisements like, uh, have you checked the children? This is the original version with Carol Kane in it. And we went to uh, we went to see it. And there was a movie theater in New York that had a, a waiting area that yes. you could sit in if it was raining. And... You would be in the theater, but you would, you know, basically be waiting for the next show. But I never liked to do that because you could hear the theater sometimes. Spoilers. And spoil it. But on this day that we went, yes, uh, it was pouring rain. So we, we were in the lobby of the theater, my buddy Mark and I, and we're excited to see the movie. We don't know anything about it, but we know it's going to be fucking scary. And suddenly we hear a theater of 600 people scream at the same time. It was unbelievable. And a moment later, the doors burst open and a guy pukes in the lobby. Uh. And it was the greatest moment of my life. I'm like, <laughs> this movie, there's something terrifying going to happen in this movie because that was insane. And we went to see it, went inside, and there's this scene in the movie. Yeah, It's late in the movie. The serial killer who played Carol Kane has escaped from prison. This is from the insane asylum 10 years later. She's in bed with her husband at night. And the room is lit with sort of bad moon blue lighting. And you see this closet door slowly start to open. And it's terrifying because we now know it's like there's 10 minutes left in the movie. We know this is the big, this is the scene. So the whole audience, you know, is terrified because we've seen this guy puke in the lobby. The door of the closet is slowly opening. She's in bed with her husband. Shaft of bad blue fake movie lighting is showing the closet and you can make out a figure and you know the serial killer's in the closet and it's just fucking terrifying. The door is opening slower and slowly and you're like, no, no. And she's in bed with her husband and finally the shaft of light hits the body in in the closet and you realize that it's not the serial killer but it's her husband and he's dead and he's hanging in the closet and in the bed is the serial killer. And it is the scariest I've ever been in a movie. Oh my before. God, did you pick? I didn't puke. But it is. It's. It. It was. Uh, uh, it was very satisfying. Yeah, that's. It was very satisfying. Great. I don't know if I watch that again. You know. Yeah. Would I be scared? Yeah. I've never seen it again. That was the scare. I, I was. Just, I've never seen that again. That was too scary. That's a great moment. And I, you know, I get scared, and there's like, you know, I get scared pretty often. I, I don't mind being scared in the movies. I, I like the quiet place. Scared, scared yeah. me a lot. Um, but nothing quite like being a fourteen-year-old and sort of like at the at that perfect moment yeah. when 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 you're you could just be scared like that. I love it. Uh- Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, what is the film? That made you cry the most? When I was a kid, I went to see... I'm sure I cried when I was very little. I don't remember. But the first movie that really made me cry was Terms of Endearment. Mm. When Deborah Winger's dying in the bed and her kids come. And her kid, her sort of son who has been angry at her the whole time. And and he's crying. I mean, it's just... It was... I still think about it. That movie's nearly perfect. and. That was real tears that I didn't expect to come when I saw it at that age. Quick story about Moonlight Mile. Okay. Ready? It's a great story and I'd love to hear it. Okay. So I was living in New York at the time, Moonlight Mile, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, and it was playing in a theater across the street. And I went to the theater in New York to see it as the first showing. And the first day there were like 12 people in the theater, but I was happy to, to find an excuse not to write sitting in the theater ready for the movie to start. And the movie starts, like literally starts, like the logo of the production company. Mm. And this woman starts to sob. And everyone in the theater is by themselves because it's a 12 yeah. noon showing of a movie that no one wants to see anyway. And, <laughs> and we're all sitting there and she's sobbing. She's sobbing during the opening credits. The first scene starts and she, it's like, it's ridiculous. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like we're, this is a movie about death to begin with, yeah. but we are three minutes in, like it's the, the movie is barely started. No, dead yet. And, and she is sobbing audibly and in deep, like it's crazy. And suddenly, cause it's New York city, the greatest city in the world, a loud, clear voice comes from somewhere in the theater. And it says, he says, ma'am, you are clearly going through something very personal. This is not the movie you should be seeing. You should get up now and you should leave. <laughs> it was like the voice of God. It was like God came down. And she got up and she... She, and she left. She left. It was, it was a perfect. And unfortunately, we had to watch the movie after that. But <laughs> it was really, it was really one of those most perfect... Moonlight Mile is not for you. <laughs> wow. Well, New York theaters are pretty great. When I grew up in New York, like, and I worked in a movie theater, which was a great place to which work. Which one? I worked in a movie near Times Square on 44th and Broadway called the Criterion Movie Theater, which was a sixplex. I worked there in the early 80s. This is before Times Square was Disneyfied. Yeah. And it, this wasn't a porn theater. It was a regular theater, but it was around a lot of... My parents just didn't care. They just like, let me go. <laughs> and, and, and I worked there. But the greatest part about that job was... Well, there were a few things. One, it was a great way to commit to, to steal money. I can tell that story. But beyond that, you got two, as an usher in New York at that time, if you worked in a movie theater, you can get into any movie theater in New York for free, uh, you and a date. This was the unwritten rule. There was no, this is just a, a, a usher code of conduct. How and did you prove you were an usher? You just said, I work at the Criterion and okay. in. And you didn't lie about it because no. there was two, there was a code of honor right. among ushers. But this was for a film buff, 
this was unbelievable. And I remember in 11th grade, I was dating this girl, Mitzi, and we went to the movies all the time. And it was always free because I didn't have to pay for the tickets. Yeah, so right. it was really, really an incredible thing. But um, and how, you want to know how we we made, we stole money from the theater? Oh, can you tell me? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this is in Times Square, basically, in the early 80s, in the crowd at the Criterion. Like, there'd be one new movie, like, The Verdict played there for, like, six months back when a movie would play forever. Yeah. But uh, then they'd have a lot of other movies, and it was sometimes it was like not the greatest crowd in the world, and you just sort of got through it. But is this is when people were like smoking and smoking pot, like oh, great. smoking and smoking pot, like it was crazy the amount of pot right. in that theater. So my friend Liam, who's subsequently like been like part of a journalistic team that's won a Pulitzer Prize, like he's a very smart guy, much smarter than uh, me, and he came up with this idea because he worked there too, and he's like, "Look, I'm selling the tickets, Richard. You're." tearing the tickets but these people are so high out of their mind that you need to figure the ones who are high and what you need to do is yeah. you need to pretend you need to pantomime ripping the tickets and then pantomime handing it back to them and they are then going to take nothing and move on so every like fifth person would come in and i would pantomime ripping the ticket, yeah. hand them back nothing. A lot of times they would take nothing as if they were taking yeah. it and they'd walk in. And then I would take the full ticket, bring it back to Liam who would then sell it and we would split the profit from that. So we were making like 100 or $150 a day. So hang on, but then weren't two people going to the same seat? No, well, listen, is... you didn't reserve seats. And there oh, was, okay. It was a shitty theater. There was never a sold out crowd. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's it, a great scam. Yeah, it, was a re- it really was a really good one for a while. <laughs> and then the movie that I... Uh, I cried at the most now. now. Mm. Uh, when my dad died like 12 years ago or 13 years ago, I went to see uh, Jim Sheridan's In America and I, I basically cried. Like I dealt with so much. I was yeah. like waiting for the guy to tell me to leave the theater because I was just, I was <laughs> sobbing. Sir, this is not Moonlight Mile. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but I'm a, I'm emotionally, I can I cry a lot at, at like I cried at, to Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, I... And you cry in life as well as that? I do. I mean, I'm not... Uh, uh, I'm not o- an overly crying person, but I can get emotional when it has to do with, like, my kids or my, mm. my family. Or I, I, I will, you know... I mean, I, I, I feel like I have to be in tune with all parts of emotion. I'm mm. certainly in tune with, like, anger and passion and uh, jealousy and... All that stuff, but it's also good to be in tune with, you know, emotional nice connectiveness. That is great. Now, uh, what is the film that sort of critically, generally, people say this film shit, but you love it unashamedly? You're like, you guys are all wrong. Well, I've been thinking about this, and it's a hard one to hmm. answer. I've always had a little bit of a fascination for famous filmmakers' worst movies. Yes, I know what you mean. Uh, um, because I feel like, you know, I, I'm a fan of Heaven's Gate. You know, right. I'm a fan of One from the Heart. These aren't great movies. Yeah. I think the first half of Ishtar is one of the great greatest comedies ever. Mm. Like, I feel like there's a few bombs by great filmmakers that mm. I have an affinity to. But I have, like, strange film tastes. Like, I don't, I, I don't care if people don't like a movie if I like it. And I don't care yeah. if, if, if I hate a movie that people people like like i i'm i tend to not want to read a lot of reviews before i, I read them afterwards i like yeah. to look at at a critical assessment of something afterwards but i don't want to know too much do you read your own reviews uh 
it's really hard. Mm. If I know it's going to be really good, I'll read it. Yeah. I'll start reading everyone and then I'll start realizing it's not so good. I, it depends. You know, you have to be in the right mood. There'll be, there'll be mm. days when I'm feeling very confident that I can read some bad reviews of which, oh, let me tell you a story. So okay. when I was, when I was young, when I was like 24 or 25, I made basically my first movie, which was called The Linguini Incident, which was romantic comedy, which was neither romantic nor funny. <laughs> but it did star. That was the pitch. But it did star yeah. David Bowie. It was oh, David wow. Bowie's like worst movie. And I got to direct it. And I wrote, co-wrote it. And I, 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 it was Roseanne Arquette and, and David Bowie. And wow. uh, it was uh, an incredibly painful experience to, Terrible, terribly painful. Like I, mm. I cried on that set. Oh, I lost my shit on that set one day in just total tears. Like it was, oh, I've never cried before or after on a film set. Yeah. It was horrible. There was the producer was never around. He was a drug addict. It was like a shit show. I had to fire oh, Shelley that's... Winters. We had no money. David Bowie was the loveliest guy in the world, though. So right. the movie's finished, and it's it's a tough movie to cut. I'm not handling the pressure well. Yeah. I was young. I was like not wanting to listen to input. Like I was, I do everything I do correctly now. I didn't do then. Right. It was just a mess. So the movie's finally coming out. It's sort of not quite the movie that I want it to be. The movie I wanted it to be was terrible. This is a little less than terrible, but it was not the movie that I wanted it to be. But whatever the case <laughs> is, the movie opens and it opens in New York and LA and like 10 other cities, but it opens on the weekend of the riots in LA. Fucking hell. So it had the lowest per screen average in the history oh of cinema God. because there was a curfew in, in in L.A. And to make matters worse, we get a good review in the New York Times and the L.A. Times. And neither the New York Times or the L.A. Times are delivered oh to anyone God. in L.A. that day because there's a riot in the city. Yeah. So they end up reading the reviews on Monday from like Variety and Hollywood Reporter that hated, hated oh, the movie. Fuck. But my girlfriend who I wrote at the time, Tamar Broad, who I wrote the movie with, Family was from the Bay Area. So on Thursday night before the movie opened, Friday, we decided to leave L.A. because it was on fire and drive up to, to San Francisco to yeah. stay at her family's house in Oakland to not basically die in the riots. And we're driving out and we get like halfway up the coast and spend the night in a motel and wake up the next morning to read the L.A. Times glowing review. Now, remember, 90% in the paper is about this riot. Yeah. And I could care less. I could give a fuck about the riot. I'm reading the review, and it's a glowing review. Of the, it is a great review of our movie. And we are like, oh, my God. Little do we know that no one in L.A. is reading this review yeah. because no one's getting their paper. We then drive like four more hours. We get up to San Francisco, and we pull into a gas station, and we buy the San Francisco Chronicle because the movie was also opening in San Francisco. Yeah. San Francisco Chronicle has a way of reviewing movies. Instead of one star, two star, it's either... A guy asleep in a chair, a guy sort of sitting in a chair, a guy sitting up in a chair, or a guy standing above a chair clapping. Yeah. Our review had an empty chair. Oh, fuck me. And it then complained about how many trees were killed printing the script. <laughs> now, this is how crazy I am. I say to Tamar, fuck San Francisco, and we drive back to the riots in L.A. <laughs> I want to burn to death in LA. Exactly. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yeah. So that's a that's a long way of saying that I sometimes that's one of the worst sort of stories I've ever read. <laughs> I'm amazed you're still here. <laughs> Fucking hell. 
That's impressive. You yeah, got through that. I survived that. <sighs> Bloody hell. Well, well done. Yeah. Oh, so hang on. What's the film you love? If you answered that, what's the film you love that everyone hates? I didn't answer it. No. No, I'm not answering it. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is a film you used to love? And you've watched recently and you're going, oh, no, I don't love this anymore for various yeah. reasons. Okay, so I'm not answering that question either, but I'm going to tell you something <laughs> adjacent to that. Okay. There are certain movies that I will not see a second time. When a Stranger Calls, for example. Well, that's because it scared the tar out of me. But I know if I watched it now, I would hate yeah. it, right? I yeah. mean, but that's, that's, that's not the case. There's certain movies that are so good mm-hmm. that I'm afraid to see them again because I'm afraid they won't be as good. Yeah. So... Uh, well, also, I, I, Roma is something that I'm on the fence about seeing again because I was blown away by it. Blown mm. away. And I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, agreed. I'm a little worried if the second time I'm going to find problems with it. But part of me wants to watch the second time just from a purely like, how did they pull it off? And yeah. it's such a piece of beautiful piece of filmmaking. I'm a little nervous about that. I think I'm going to watch it again. I'm, I'm leaning towards I that. I think it will hold up. But like Breaking the Waves. Do you remember that it's, movie? Yeah. I've never seen it again because I, it was one of the most unbelievable movie-going experiences. Well, this is an interesting story. So okay. this is Breaking the Waves is at the New York Film Festival. I know nothing about it. This oh. is when it premiering, whatever, 15, 20 years ago. There's a girl that I kind of like, and she's a friend of another friend. And somehow the other friend is like, I have two tickets to see this movie at the film festival, but I can't go. Why don't you go with this girl? So I'm like, oh. She likes me too. Like this is all part of their con to get me to go with her to the movie, and it's great. So I'm like, first of all, yeah, like she's cute, and B, like I'm going to, to a premiere of yeah. a movie. I didn't know anything about it, but so it we, sounds like a surf film. Exactly. Yeah. yeah we're so have we fun. go to Breaking the Waves, and, and the first part of the night, we go out for dinner. She's lovely. It's fun. Like it, we're definitely there's a connective thing. We get to the movie. Breaking the Waves starts. And it is the most unbelievable movie at that point I'd ever seen. I'm sucker punched in like an unbelievable way. Yeah. So the movie is over and I'm I'm shattered. And she's like, so should we go get a drink? And I'm like, I, I just actually have to walk home by myself right now. And I just left her standing on 66 feet in Broadway, never to see her again. It's a horrible story about it. You are a proper film man. And yeah. I respect that. It's just horrible. Nothing about that story. Makes um, me look good. I, I, it makes me like you more, <laughs> sadly. Horrible. Um, still not answering your question. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, well then, this is my favourite question. What's the film that has the most meaning to you? Not because the film might, might not even be good, but because of the experience you had watching it and that you will always remember that film for that reason. Well, this is one of my favourite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in New York, as I've now said 12 times, and <laughs> near my house on the Upper West Side was a, a movie theatre called The New Yorker, which had a bookstore above it, which was one of the greatest bookstores in the world because it was a tiny little bookstore. You went in the first floor and it just had cigarettes and cigars and magazines. And then there was this little spiral staircase and you went upstairs and it was like a block long bookstore and i just loved it my dad loved it and we would go there every saturday and i would just go into the film section and be gone for three hours and just watch it read it so but that movie theater i saw a lot of movies that i loved as a kid Mm -hmm. and apocalypse now had 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 opened and i really wanted to see it and my dad and i went to see it and that's the movie and that 
day was the day that I realized that I wanted to become a film director. I had interest in Super right. 8. I had interest in Super 8 movies. Mm-hmm. I was interested in movies because my dad loved movies. But that was the day I realized what a director could do and what the power that movies could have. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget it. Like, it was an unbelievable experience and I, that I got to see it with my dad. And that, and I remember, like, this is such a crazy thing. Like they had a record, like a two LP record of Apocalypse Now, which had like the narration and then sound effects and music. And I remember that summer. So I saw the movie and then getting the record and just playing the record over and over. And like, I can do Saigon shit monologue from, from it's ingrained in my head, but this movie like just changed my entire way of thinking about movies, which is, you know, why I saved, I died saving Francis yeah. Coppola's life because he really right, did yeah. offer me this insight into to, to a world that has given me such an interesting, weird life. That's lovely. I mean, that's a fucking great film, Apocalypse Now. There's something this, magic about it. You know what doesn't hold up is the director's cut version of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And here's what you should always avoid. Director's cuts of films in which the director has final cut. Because nine out of ten times, nine out of ten, there's there's an occasional uh, aberration to my theory, but nine out of ten times it's just a cash grab. So yeah. this Apocalypse Now redo is just shit. It's mm. terrible. All that footage you cut out should have just been left on the editing room floor. And to have that as an ex- in existence and people are seeing that instead of the original, it's like a... But I just watched Apocalypse Now again for who knows how many times I've seen it. And the original... And it is such a masterpiece. And you think about now making movies and knowing how difficult yeah. it is to just shoot a scene of two people sitting talking, only to imagine what it's like that you've like put your house and your family on the line, you've, you've mortgaged everything, you're out in the Philippines, and you're trying to get helicopters to come over a thing at the same time with the magic. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable piece of achievement. Yeah. The year that Apocalypse Now did not win Best Director at the Oscars, infuriated me and i'm still angry about it 1979 i remember this furious 14 years old like screaming at the tv because this apocalypse now changed my life like that was what one is that is it rocky so best director went to no rocky was the year before uh, a few years before best director went to robert benton for kramer versus kramer Uh, now i remember at the time being furious about this and also saying what did he fucking do? He just directed a guy and it's this. It's so sitting down, they're sitting just down, sitting. they're just sitting. There's no helicopters. But then I saw Kramer versus Kramer. I've seen it a lot of times since, yeah. and it is an exquisite movie. And I do understand the complexity of directing that quiet a movie and that yeah. special, an intimate movie. Though I am still infuriated that. Coppola didn't win for Apocalypse Now. I think that's fair. What was the and Kramer versus Kramer won the film as well? Did it Best what? Picture? I don't know what won that year, but Apocalypse did not win. That right. Year, yeah. Great answer. Now, this next question is uh, an interesting one for you. Mm. What is the film that you thought was sexiest? And the reason I think it's interesting for you is you are particularly good at and have done an awful lot, an awful lot more than average of sex scenes. You're the go-to sex scene guy. I did a sex scene with you. Mm. It was extraordinary. Just us together. Yeah. Right before this recording. <laughs> it was extraordinary and there was no script and, and I didn't know no it was that. <laughs> I did think it was weird, but I thought he seems to know what he's doing. We're improv. Girls was very good. 
Um, and I wondered, well, A, I'd like to know your answer, but B, like, do you have a, because it's particularly now with everything going on, there's a lot of conversation about how sex scenes are done and yeah. treatment of people and everything. Do you think, do you think you have particular insight into this? Like, why is it, you're very good at them. I've, got, I've gotten good at them. I didn't, right. I didn't start off very good at them. Um, I, I started off terrible at them, I think. Um, okay. uh, the sort of British cut of Linguini incident, there's the worst sex scene possibly ever directed. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I got good at them because I got more comfortable. I got more comfortable with my own things. I got more comfortable with directing, but I also got more comfortable with speaking to actors. I got more comfortable mm. with finding things that were truly sexy to me. And, and we are living in a very specific world right now where there's intimacy coordinators and people are very concerned about that. Yeah. Girls didn't operate that way. It was a very free form, but no actor did what they didn't. I mean, everyone knew what, was, what, yeah. what it was ahead of time. But like lately I've taken to, to getting rid of everyone and just being the cameraman and me and the actors. And I did that on this short film I made in Tokyo with... Is that Tokyo. online now? It's on HBO Go or HBO you must Talk, watch Tokyo it. It's Project. Brilliant. Tokyo Thank Project. you. With Elizabeth Moss, and that was just the two actors and me and the cameraman in a room, and it was amazing. Mm. And I did it also with the perfection. There's a sex scene in the perfection, right. but that comes from telling the actors that they have final cut of the scene, so they can come in the nice. editing room and remove anything they want. That's a huge thing That's for an actor, nice. yeah. and then also. By describing kind of what you want them to do, but also just sort of like creating an environment where it's pretty free. If the actors are open to that, that's a very interesting way of doing it. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they want like, I want to make sure you're going to see my left breast here and my this thing yeah. and here and this. And they don't have, they want it done that way. And I, I respect that also. But if you're trying to really get a sex scene to, to happen in a truly sexy way it's very difficult especially american audiences have a hard time with sex scenes they get they start laughing it makes them uncomfortable like if something's attempting to be honest it it it, it, it when it comes to sex it's very strange we don't mind seeing nudity or yeah. porn but like sex scenes in movies make people like that that actual intimacy makes people uncomfortable it's strange yeah. my favorite sex scene mm -hmm. well i think i have a few I remember seeing Betty Blue when I was in high school yeah. and that opening sequence, it really felt like they were having sex. Yeah, it's and I, I remember being amazed by that and in, in both as, in a purely like dirty mind, 14 year old, 13 year old, yeah. 15 year old sort of way. But, but, but past that also in the intimacy that it immediately shoved me in into the story and i was very moved by that movie and, and, yeah. and truly loved that movie because of that um i think about when i was in high school i was in love with deborah winger an officer and a gentleman okay and i remember that sex scene a lot because okay. she's topless in it and it i remember bringing my girlfriend to see it after i'd already seen it simply because i wanted to see that scene again which is not very classy but in terms of like sex scenes now they kind of bore me so i always have to think about like how does a scene if it's just a sex scene it doesn't work if it's if it if it's somehow moving the emotional meter mm. in some way i find myself far more turned on than yeah. if it's just a sex scene because a lot of the times they're just not sexy i mean you just know that yeah. these are these are actors and like you know i watched um carol 
with um, uh, uh, Kate, Blanchett. Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, which is a which 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 is a lot of good things in it. But there's this sex scene in which Rooney Mara is topless and Kate Blanchett is not. And all I thought during the entire scene was, well, someone negotiated this contract differently. And I know that that's not what you're supposed to feel, yeah. but that's what I felt. And I think I feel that way a lot in sex scenes. Like mm. this is this has all been negotiated too much. Now. If negotiating things makes an actor comfortable, that is the price we have to pay, right? Yeah. We're not uh, like the, the. I'm not trying to advocate that that the, the actors need to do everything that the director wants or whatever. But there is a certain thing where it's already so artificial yeah. that when it becomes when you sort of see things that are even more artificial, which is why a lot of the times, like a number of the sex scenes I did in Girls, um, were oneers, which is one t- like one no cutting. So the time. Hannah and Patrick Wilson, uh, Lena and Patrick Wilson in One Man's Trash is basically a one-er. There's like one cutaway, but it's one shot. And in the uh, Allison Williams episode where she wanders off in the city with her old boyfriend, there's a sex scene that's a, a one-er. And it's mostly just kissing. Yeah. And in a way, because it doesn't cut away and it is very intimate, it feels sexier yeah. than seeing someone's ass or tit or cock or whatever. Like it's not... Yeah. Um, I, I think why Don't Look Now is the is the best sex scene, or one of the best sex scenes, because exactly what you're talking about is that not only is it beautifully done and everything, but it's about something. It's, it's erotic most... because it's erotic that they... It's, it's erotic because you are in their emotional headspace yeah. of what it means, that that sex means so much, and the fact that the way it's edited, that you're seeing them in that post Coital, yeah. like uh, the, the 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 cockiness in which um, Donald Sutherland is getting dressed in the yeah. mirror, you know that he feels like he's a man again yeah. after being, uh, you know, not having sex with his wife for so long. It is such an extraordinary scene, and and they are, they, whether it feels like whether they had sex or not in real life, yeah. I don't care. And uh, it, what what it does feel like is. That in that story at that moment that couple was connected, yeah. and it makes that whole movie. It makes the whole movie in a way, even though the whole film is so brilliantly directed. Yeah. That sequence is on another level. It's fully like I have talked about this, on, and maybe not here, but that it's one of the few times where it's like, oh, this is people making love. Like it's right. it's a married couple. It's about love that sexy, right. and that is very rare. And that it feels like I showed it to my girlfriend and she cried in that section i was like yeah i get why you're crying because right. it's incredibly moving they're right. and well, they're reconnecting they're through reconnecting through it. it it's yeah it's extraordinary scene now i don't know if it's sexually titillating to me no but it is it's an incredibly beautiful. intimate scene yeah. in which i think 99 percent like talk about movies that age badly like if you watch basic instinct and he's yeah. throwing her against the wall and the Michael Douglas's bony ass and Sharon Stone. <laughs> it's like I under. It's very much of the time, yeah. you know. But it's the least sexy thing in the world. I don't, you know, I don't know what anyone was thinking. Thinking that was <laughs> like hot on any level. Yeah, I have a subcategory. Yeah, the subcategory is uh, troubling boners, worrying why don'ts, which yes. uh, keeps. I, I keep trying to get rid of this question. People keep asking. I don't know back. what a worrying why on. Uh, well, that's for the, the female guests. So you're you would be a wide the... on is like a is like a is like a is like them getting titillated by something. Yeah. 
Is that a phrase, or do you make it in up? England? Just, I yeah, mean, this is why the British will never be great again. <laughs> so um, the, so the, it's it's a film you found arousing that you may have thought. I'm not sure if that's it. Well, I, I was trying to think about this, and I, I have two answers. Mm-hmm. I hate watched Fifty Shades of Grey. Like yes. hate watched it, and still fucked my girlfriend right after watching it. So, so that so it was an artistically troubling point. But it clearly somehow turned me on, yeah. even though I hated every ounce of it and ludicrous, you know. But yeah. I was turned on in some way from it. But I know as a kid, I would watch like Soul Train, which was like a the like a, a dance show, like an urban hit, yeah. dance show that. It was on Saturday mornings. American Bandstand was a show and then Soul Train. And it was basically like kids dancing to the songs of the moment. So this yeah. is like the, the 70, 77, 78, 1977, 78, I was 12 or 13. And I would watch that show and it would fully clothe people just yeah. dancing. And I would be turned on in some unbelievable way that I knew wasn't right like this wasn't really or maybe it was the reason yeah. to watch it but i mean it's just i would just go into like a masturbatory like frenzy from watching <laughs> it and i know that that was probably embarrassing on even yeah. saying it is embarrassing but it was certainly not what it was intended for but um yeah so i don't That's know does that answer, answer that or? perfect answer what is the film you most relate to you know this is a toughie I relate to so many movies, um, especially if they're, you know, if it's about if they're love stories, I can relate to them. Certainly mm-hmm. anything about Hollywood. I, you know, I love the yeah. stunt man, which is this Peter O'Toole yeah. movie, which he played an egocentric director. I just loved it as a kid. It just filled all my fantasies about it. I think, I think Rushmore I related to a lot. I wasn't really quite like Jason Schwartzman, but yeah. I, I did go to the beat of my own drummer in terms of, of, of the things I wanted to do. I, I always felt a little bit like an outsider, but I also had a lot of interests. I made Super 8 movies. I would get the kids in school to like bake stuff and have bake sales on the street to raise money for my movies. And really? like uh, very entrepreneurial. And I, I felt, I think Rushmore is a brilliant, yeah. a brilliant movie. And, and, very warm and very positive, but also dark and funny. And Bill Murray is great and the script and the stuff. But I think Rushmore is the one, if I had to pick a, a, a character, even though, I, again, I wasn't quite like him in the movie, but I did see myself in him in, in some way. Great answer. I can see that. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And um, what is objectively the greatest film of all time. Might not be your favourite. I don't know what objectively means. I guess what I mean is, aliens come, and yeah. they go, what is cinema? We've only got time for one. Oh, Jesus. The they only have time for one? Yeah. And it might not be your well, favourite. Well, here's the problem with my answer. Yeah. Is you have to have seen The Godfather to know that The Godfather 2 is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> Fuck, these aliens are going to be these so These aliens confused. are going to be so confused. <laughs> this is awful. I didn't realise that was the part of the answer. Yeah. These aliens are coming down, and they're like, Who's Michael Corleone? What are they talking about? Why, why is it so dark? Yeah. Um, the Godfather 2 is the greatest uh, uh, movie ever made, in my opinion. It's a perfect, right. it's a perfect movie. It's, 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 I remember seeing it in New York City 
with my dad took me to a, a revival of it. So I think it came out in 74 and I probably saw it in like 77 or 78. And I just, uh, you know, I was a kid still, but my brain, I was blown away and I've subsequently seen it enough to know that it's probably my, the best movie ever made. It's, mm-hmm. it's a family drama. It's a fascinating historical look at America. Yeah. It is about America it's a good goddamn good gangster film. It's got it's it's an epic in the true sense of the words. When these when a Marvel movie is three hours long, I don't fucking understand it. I don't mm. I don't get it. Like they would make more money if the movie was an hour I and agree a half. With this. And it would cost a lot less. Yeah. I just don't understand. No one wants to see. It. I, I mean, even when they're good, I don't love those movies, but they're good ones. I don't need three hours of it. I don't understand it. Now, if you're making The Godfather Part Two, yeah, it can be the length that it needs to be. Because that movie is as deep and thrilling as any movie ever. It's far more thrilling than any Marvel movie could possibly imagine. Because mm-hmm. it is, it is deep. But um, yeah, so that's my answer. Have you seen Mamma Mia two? I have. It's the Godfather two of Mamma Mia films. It really is. It's the Godfather three of Godf- of <laughs> Mamma Mia films. I think. Uh, what is what's the film you can or have watched the most over and over? Uh, okay, well that's a. It used to be The Godfather, but I stopped. I had a, I made a documentary about John Cazale, who played Fredo. Yes. And uh, I'm very proud of that movie for HBO. And uh, But subsequently, it's been eight or nine years since I made that movie. No, 2009. So it's been it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't watched any of those movies that he's in since then. Because right. I had to watch them while I was making the documentary. So it's kind of sad. Because I would e- easily answer Godfather 2 or right. Conversation is the one I watch over and over again. But... Lately, in the last 10 years, yeah. I've really zoned in on Social Network and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Fincher. Really? I, 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 I can watch those movies almost on a loop. Interesting. I, and, and Social Network is a masterpiece. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is not the greatest movie ever made, but there is something about the filmmaking that is so exquisite and so compelling that those movies and maybe... Um, Zero Dark Thirty are movies that I can oh, watch. I can watch on a loop. I, I learn a lot. Like Zero Dark Thirty is expertly directed by Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, and I think all three of those movies have like such a sure directorial hand, and they're complex stories that are told in a way that makes them entertaining as well as being complex. I think that's what I'm attracted to. Like, yeah. there's several layers of deep going on. And uh, you know the music in all of them is great. Cinematography in all of them is great. The control of of the filmmaking. So those are the the newer movies that I would watch. But you know, like I, I I I worked in a movie theater as I told you, where they showed the yeah. verdict, and I saw it fifty times when I worked in that movie theater. And I still, when it's on, I will watch it, and I know I, I know every frame of it backwards and forwards. But it's certain movies I'm just like, oh, I'm in. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, the original Rocky, I mean, you know, there's certain movies that I'm just going to watch it. I love that. What's the worst? I don't like to be negative. We'll do it quickly. What's the worst film you ever saw? So I've been thinking about this and I, I yeah. feel like there's uh, certain bad movies I enjoy mm-hmm. in a sort of, yeah. uh, as we all do. Yeah. Um, certain movies are just turds and they're just frustrating that everyone likes them. Why didn't I like them? Certain movies I've seen that I've hated. When I was in college, Oliver Stone, but right before Platoon, yeah. he made a movie called Salvador. And yes. he came 
to he was an NYU grad and he came to show it at NYU. Yeah. And we were a class full of jerks. Like we were just arrogant as only a film student can be. Just like we are great and you are not. And he came to show Salvador and I remember sitting in that theater with my arms crossed being like, fuck you, you made a movie, so what? This fucking piece of shit movie and hating it. Like just infuriated by every single frame of it. And remember, I remember and then he spoke afterwards and he was cocky and I hated him even more and he kind of kept looking at my girlfriend and I really hated him (laughs) and, and everything like this. So then a few months later, it actually opened mm. in theaters. And I was like, you know, I'm going to see this fucking awful movie Piece again. And I'm like, what? A masterpiece. What an idiot I am. Yeah. And I remember being like, this movie is so special. And I still continue to think it's an extraordinary yeah. piece of filmmaking. So there are movies like that. Mm. I do think that like sometimes... You have to be great to be awful, as I was talking about before. Yeah. So, like, you know, Spielberg's Bridge of Spies is dead on arrival to mm. me. You know, Scorsese's Kundun or Silence, both of them dead on arrival, I think. I love Silence. Stand by Silence. I think it's still playing in the cinema I went to see it in. <laughs> the actual screening <laughs> I went to. Listen, you might be the only other person they saw it. Um, uh, so, like, Woody Allen's Hollywood ending, you know? Like, there's movies that great filmmakers make that are just, like, you're, yeah. like, your expectations are so high, and, and, and they don't they don't work for you for whatever reason. Maybe I'll yeah. see Silence again, just for you. I think it's so, so that, underrated. I, I'm it is underrated, because it it's didn't, awful. I'm amazed it didn't get all the... I was like, this is his great later work. Wow. Yeah. I think it's one of the best Sorry. films about religion ever made. No, see, see, I'm, I'm an atheist. Maybe that's the problem. I am too, but the film made me go... Maybe I should believe in No, it made me go, cinema. for a man who makes, who cares about religion, it's a film that plays both ways. It's like, all about faith, and also, this is fucking mental. And it plays, it doesn't... Hmm. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it again for you. Oh, I don't know if you've got the, t- the time. No, I do <laughs> have the long. time. I'm going to do it, just so I can, you know... Call me back and go, exactly. it's Salvador. I was right. It's the Salvador of... of right. That's <laughs> right, right. Okay, what's the film that made you laugh the most? So... I would think it's the original The In-Laws. Ah, Neil Simon. No. Oh. Andrew Bergman wrote it. Ah. Arthur Hiller directed it with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. It's called The In-Laws. Oh, okay. And it is, to me, the funniest movie ever made. Now, this is also a movie that I won't watch again because I'm worried it's not. But for a long period of time, it is. And there's a line in the movie where Alan Arkin is being chased by some bad guys and he plays a dentist and he's being chased... For some reason, and he says, "Please God, don't let me die on West Thirty First Street," which, if you know anything about New York, is the greatest comedy line ever written. Because West Thirty First Street is the single bleakest street in New York City. But every time that I walk on West Thirty First Street, because I will walk past West Thirty First yeah. Street whenever I'm walking in Manhattan, I say that line out loud. That's great. You've been an excellent guest. Tremendous, Thank you. Thank fascinating. You. Said every. I mean, brilliant. As good as I hoped. Okay. More. Good. Thank you. You were the Salvador second screener. <laughs> uh, now, uh, I'm sorry that we've had to rush the second yeah. half of this. However, when you saved Francis Ford Coppola's yes. life by raising your arm up and getting yes. struck by lightning, your body burned. Yes. It was also raining. It got mixed up with the mud, with the soil, with the vineyard, with the grapes. We did our best. Yes. We scooped you up. 
you were in bits. There was ashes. There was a bit of, got a bit of like vines in there. All sorts of a mess. We piled it all into the coffin. There was much more of you than we thought because we picked up yeah, other shit. I was a little overweight at this point. Coffin yeah. was stuffed. There's only room for one DVD. But we can slip a DVD in the side. And when you go to the other side, there's movie night. One movie night. It's your movie night. What film are you taking with you to show to everyone? Well, it's hard to pick one. But I, I, I'm going to only answer one because that's the question and I appreciate it. And I will say... That if I had to take one movie, it's the movie that over the course of my life, I revisit and think it gets deeper and better with each viewing. It's a little obscure, though film people know it, certainly. Yeah. It's Sorcerer by William Friedkin. Oh, magical. I think it's a masterpiece. It is It is a tough, dark, cynical, yeah. brilliantly put together action adventure movie. That is that killed Freakin's career in many ways. Mm. Um, opened the same day as Star Wars or whatever, Perfect. like just disappeared. And it's kind of, kind of. They just re-released it on Blu-ray. And yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's really worth seeing. Roy Scheider's in it. There's very little dialogue. It's it's an it's a, it's a, it's a tangerine dream did this school score. It's a deeply cool movie, yeah. and I it's a movie that when. I have friends who haven't seen it. I'm like, we're watching it like that. And I'm really, I will sit down and watch it with them. Yeah. And I know that that, like, if I'm going to take that to heaven, I'm, I could feel comfortable sharing that film with yeah. a lot. No, it's not for everybody, but if they don't like it. It's not, you know, that's not, not your fault. It's yes, heaven. Exactly. The bag on board. That's an excellent answer. No one else has taken it. If you take an apocalypse now or the Godfather no, too. Everyone's who got who that. Who am I? I'm not that guy. Yeah. Please. Excellent. Um, Richard Shepard. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to release this near the time of The Perfection. I appreciate that. So everyone that is listening, you may watch The Perfection on Netflix. Yes. I suggest you do. Yes. But do it properly with the lights off and your phones off and the sound up, please. Thank you. Don't watch it on your phone. Damn it. Don't be a prick and watch it on your phone, please. It's a proper Seriously, film. people. Thank you. Richard, you've been a joy. I appreciate you coming. Is there anything you'd like to tell me before you go? No. Uh, I, 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 thank you. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you, buddy. Have a wonderful time on the other side. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. So that was episode 46. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 10 minutes of good stuff. And if you do enjoy this show, please subscribe, give it a five stars and a nice review for the simple reason. Apparently it helps our numbers, means more people get to listen to it. I can keep making it. You can keep enjoying it. We can all keep living our lives to the best of our abilities until the world explodes. Thank you so much to Richard Shepard for doing this show. Everyone get on Netflix and watch his film The Perfection. Watch it on a big screen with the sound up. Thank you to him for being so great. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to Acast for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lydon for the artwork. Come join me next week where my special guest will be the brilliant comedian Susie Ruffle. In the meantime, have a lovely week and please, please be excellent to each other.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.